0: Hey everybody, I'm Tyler and this is the Early Days Podcast. I created this show as part of my work as an investor at Antler. I wanted to talk to the world's best founders and pick their brains on how they went from zero to one building some of the most important companies in the world. All right, we're live, hey Swish. How you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, how are you up in Canada?
1: I am good. I'm good. I'm uh, pretty happy that uh, it's only snowed once thus far in the last few <laughs> months. So it's, it's been pretty good. It's been a pretty warm winter. Uh, and by warm, I mean like still near zero degrees, but it's still not <laughs> below, thankfully.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's all about perspective, right? You talk to a Canadian, you're like, yeah, it's only five degrees. It's an amazing winter. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, it's an amazing summer if it's five degrees <laughs> even too. No kidding. But
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Well, uh, I'm glad you're staying warm up there and uh, super excited to have you on. I know we talked like, oh, it must have been more than a year ago during COVID. I remember I was sitting in my living room, like still fully working yeah. from home and you and I had a, a first conversation and, and we talked about what you're building, Surf. And I always thought it was really impressive back then, and um, I was always really impressed with just how deep of a thinker uh, you were. So to kick us off and give people some context, you are the CEO and founder of Surf, um, which is sort of a future web browsing platform that's incorporating new incentive systems into the way people use the internet. Uh, Would love just a quick elevator pitch of like, how do you explain to people what Surf is when you talk to them?
1: yeah, I think the best way I describe it is you know we have for the last fifteen years as consumers, given our data to Amazon, Google, Facebook, big tech companies for free without any sort of compensation back. And what we're trying to do at Surf is allow you to earn something back for the data you already share. So when you're browsing the web, you know keep surf on because you could earn points for the data you're sharing, and then with those points, you can use them for items, gift cards, discounts. You can enter your points into giveaway and you can donate your points to charity. Essentially, you can get your data to actually finally do something useful for you.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And I mean, I have so many questions about it, right? But how did you like, how did you arrive at this particular problem? You're a smart guy. There's a lot of things you could probably build. Like, why, why was this the problem? The one you were like, I have to build a company around this.
1: Yeah. Actually, initially when we were building out Surf, it was previously called true fans. So we rebranded the company at the start of this year and, We actually didn't even think about this specific problem right away. Like three and a half, four years ago when we started TrueFan, our initial goal was could we build a platform that helps any brand or influencer find who their top fans on social media were. So we connected directly to the Instagram and Twitter API. We showed you all your followers. We built a lot of really cool filtering and segmentation capabilities for you to drill down into an audience that you actually care a lot about engaging with or retargeting. And I think through the process of building that out, to the process of also seeing you know all the changes in third-party data the instagram api changing that changing that changing we were like okay why are all these changes happening and one of the key things that we were pointing to was privacy regulation you know gdpr in europe ccpa in california you have cookies obviously that are going away you have ad blockers that are rising globally paid ads losing effectiveness and you have the apple ios changes that came into effect late 2021 But we're kind of being teased throughout 2019 and 2020 as something that will happen. You know, that Apple will now require mobile apps to ask you for permission when you download the app. You know, and so with all of those things, I started thinking, okay, you know, privacy is clearly the future. We're going to live in a privacy-conscious world, whether we want to or not. And in that world, data collection will likely be incredibly disrupted. Because the way that right now we're getting data from people is so... Like, A, a lot of companies weren't even asking for permission, let alone giving people something back. <laughs> and B, a lot of people didn't even know what they were signing up for in the first place. So I just yeah. thought being able to fix those two issues together with one solution might be, might be the move.
0: Yeah. It always yeah. makes me think of the South Park episode, like the Apple Terms of Service. <laughs> just like yeah. keep, keep signing off on these contracts and they don't know what they're giving away
1: literally nothing literally no no one knows anything about what they're giving away and i don't blame them i mean who wants to read a 13 page terms of service but at the same time you know we do hear about the instances like cambridge analytica we hear about the facebook data leaks we i feel like people generally hear about all these situations and are like oh my god i want to do something about my data but there's no easy way for them to manage their data or at least earn from it and so that was the goal with surf is like we didn't want to just build another complicated dashboard for you to look at all your data and have an analog to be able to kind of say, Oh, I want to share my data here. I don't want to share my data here. Like we didn't want to make it convoluted. We wanted to make something incredibly simple for people to just download right away and get started. Like, you know, earning points, you know, they, they can passively do it. They don't have to take surveys or watch ads or click specific links to get rewarded, and then if they don't want to share some types of data, they can easily do that as well. And it's all in plain english you know there's no convoluted terms there's no weird marketing jargon in the product it's something that any person could come on and immediately start earning with
0: nice i love that and how did you i mean going back even further swish like you Mm -hmm. every time we talk like you're you're so enthusiastic and you're so charismatic about what you're building like i would love to know more about your story like how did you arrive here actually how did you decide to become an entrepreneur um Mm -hmm. you know was it something you knew that you wanted to do early on or you figured out along the way like what's swish's story i think
1: for a while i wanted to be an entrepreneur in the sense of like when i was i remember even just being 10 years old and like being really interested in business and like I have like a folder back home in Calgary, Alberta. And you know, this folder is like one of my most prized possessions because it has like just random ideas that I wrote down. Like, here's a business I'd love to start. Here's another business. Some of them are <laughs> science fiction. Some of them are unrealistic. Some of them, like I assumed a budget that was just, you know, unlimited. But yeah. like the cool thing is just looking at all those ideas saying, okay, well, I was incredibly excited to build something of my own. I think for me though, when I was going to college, because I debated a lot in high school, I debated on the national team for three years in Canada. I actually thought that the path to becoming an entrepreneur would actually first be me being a lawyer. I thought like, you know, if I be a lawyer, I'll kill it. I'll make a lot of money and then I can use that money to go and start a business. That's the way my mind worked. And when I came to college, I A, realized I did not wanna be a lawyer, but B, I realized that you didn't actually need that much money in order to get started or at least take the initial leap, which is, you know, think of an idea, conceptualize it, maybe even mock it up. There's so many like tools now that are non-technical that you can use to like visualize an idea very easily and then get feedback. Like even that first step of just getting feedback from people, Hey, this is a great idea. I think it could look like this. I think this is something you should check out that also sounds like your idea. At least getting to that phase is something anybody should be able to do with literally zero dollars. So. I just wanted to be able to get moving, and I think that's where in first and second year of college, I started playing around with a bunch of ideas. And in my second year, I got the opportunity to move to New York and work on a project that kind of led me to surf eventually. It was an Instagram account for basketball fans at Dunk. I did it with my friend in in New York, Elliot, who was also my roommate. We lived together for a year and a half, and we built this big Instagram account for basketball fans at Dunk on Instagram grew that to 2.7 million followers. And that was the reason why through the process of working with brands like Warner music and Sony music and 2k, I started thinking about what tools these brands needed in order to understand their audiences. And that's kind of how true fan would you know, and obviously through the process of building true fan, you know, we started to listen to customer feedback. We started to look at where the market was going and we started to think a little, a little bit more about zero party data.
0: I love that. So you were, all right. So you were uh, going into your junior year of college and you got mm-hmm. an opportunity to move to New York and build out this NBA fan. Yeah. How did that yeah. come across your desk? Yeah,
1: I was really keen on networking in first and second year of university, but the way I did it wasn't by like asking people for coffee. I interviewed people. So I had a big following on LinkedIn kind of around my second year of college because throughout my first year I was writing probably two articles per month. And I was part of the LinkedIn campus editor program, which was very new at the time. So like yeah. the LinkedIn campus editor program, they were like amplifying every single post that I wrote you know, to like millions of students. <laughs> um, and then so it was incredible, like as long as I just started churning out more and more content. And again, the content I wrote about was like success stories uh, and you know various types of people. Like I was not just interviewing entrepreneurs. I was just interviewing musicians, architects, like people from various vocations. It was really cool to be able to write their story, write what they regret about their college experience, write what they were really excited about coming out of college, write about things like mental health, which a lot of college students can easily relate to, put that all together in like a two, three paragraph article and share that. And through the process of doing that, I interviewed Elliot. And Elliot was in Sweden at the time. He hadn't even moved to New York. And I wrote about him because he had actually built a few other accounts before that were quite prominent as well. Um, and I actually, the reason I even found out about him was through Gary Vaynerchuk. I, I saw him on a video with Gary and they were talking and Gary was like, you know what? Why don't you come to New York and work for me? And so Elliot actually moved to New York initially to work for Gary. And he was Gary's head of social strategy. And then after that, you know, I got in a call with him, interviewed him. A few months later, he was like, hey, man, I have a business idea. What do you think? Do you want to get on a call? We got in a call and he told me, like, I want to make Dunk a full time business. Like right now it's a hobby but you know our page is growing dramatically i need someone to come on who can understand you know how to hire a team how to fundraise how to like, get top line sales going because i don't know how to do that and so i was like you know what i'm yeah. in let's do it and it's and decided to work together
0: <laughs> yeah. and like 17 year old swish was like i know how to do all those things so like i can figure it out i mean
1: honestly at that time like i didn't know <laughs> you know what i didn't know either right so it's like kind of like I was so naive, uh, but I was also so optimistic <laughs> that I could figure it out. And candidly, at that point, I was so sick and tired of college. Like I just, I knew I picked the wrong degree. I knew I did not want to study what I was studying. Um, what was that? What were you I studying? It was conflict resolution. Um, and it's not like I'm not hmm. interested in that type of stuff. Like the reason I picked it is because it was a a really good uh, degree for law. B. I was part of the monk school of global affairs, which was a very small aspect of U of T. Um, my class sizes were like 30 people because it was a very selective program. Um, and I liked that because I came from a high school. My graduating class was 45 people. My junior high, my graduating class was 60 people. I wasn't used to a campus of like, you know, 2,500, 3,000 people in one class, if not more. So that was the reason I picked it. But I definitely knew that, you know, there was, there was no way I wanted to be a lawyer, which just kind of made me studying that degree not as useful and exciting for me anymore. Um, yeah. so that's why for me, I was just looking maybe for an excuse to even get out of school and just try something, you know, and my mom, uh, you you know, we're first generation Canadians who are immigrants from Singapore. I come from a South Asian family. So being able to talk to your parents about dropping out is like almost like signing your own debt certificate. But, <laughs> um, but it was, it was still a, it was still a good conversation. And she kind of gave me this like one year ultimatum. She was like, go out, you know, if you can go and like become financially independent and stand on your own two feet within a year you know you can keep going and so yeah. I, I just i went to new york and the first thing i did was like start really like looking at my life and figuring out what decisions i needed to make to make sure that by the end of that first year i did not have to go back
0: <laughs> all yeah. of our asian <laughs> listeners their palms are sweating like yeah they're like nervous. hearing you talk <laughs> sure, yeah. about talking to your mom about dropping out of college it's just like a involuntary reaction um yeah and I so you did
1: do... so... yeah go ahead okay, go ahead no, no, i am just say, one of the what are the ideal things that happened in my circumstance is that my parents were actually going through a divorce at that time, so there yeah. was like bigger fish to fry.
0: <laughs> so, so they're for, like, all right, me, quick, they're distracted. Like, I'm going to drop yeah, out of college. Yeah, they're distracted.
1: Let's go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like as scary because I think my mom was already like, you know what, fine. Like, Do your thing. Here's one year. I have like so much more shit that I need to focus on, so I was like, fair
0: enough. <laughs> whatever you want swish (laughs) yeah whatever you want whatever you want
1: go go
0: (laughs) that's hilarious um so so you went to new york you and Elliot Mm -hmm. built out at dunk and you did you did end up dropping out of toronto university of toronto yeah i did yeah i did and you Mm -hmm. parlay so how did the parlay from dunk into was it true fan
1: yeah, so you know, parlay into yeah, you know, dunk into true fan basically happened kind of
0: we're approaching the
1: second year of dunk and you know, I, I think the one great thing about that partnership with Elliot, among many other things though, but like the one main thing that I really enjoyed is that Elliot was super creative. I was obviously very business focused with by the way a ton of things i didn't know at the time but obviously just very keen on learning and and talking to people and we actually did have a pretty decent advisory board of people so like gary for example was on the advisory board brandon steiner from Steiner sports was on the advisory board so we had people around us who like we were literally soaking advice from um but one of the great things about that partnership is that you know in the process of us building together and because we were also roommates throughout the process elliot was also teaching me a lot about the creative side like you know here's how you like run a really big social media account here's how you post here's how you engage in a viral way here's how you like entice a discussion or conversation to happen I actually took a lot of those principles and even applied it back onto my own LinkedIn account that was obviously growing at that time as well Mm -hmm. as on Instagram as well and it was kind of vice versa I also taught Elliot a lot about the business side right I taught Elliot a lot about, you know, just even the smallest things like payroll software and how to manage that, you know, (laughs) hiring, like what sort of questions do you ask? Like, what is the procedure to hire people? You know, like when it comes to fundraising, even how to create a tracking list, how to go about building a pitch deck out, how the pitch deck should look, how to even pitch like these were small things. I think we taught each other really well over the course of two years. But I did feel at a certain point that Dunk wasn't necessarily a business that I wanted to scale with because there was no recurring revenue in the business. You know, Dunk would like, we would go and work with Sony Music, but they wouldn't come on for one year as a customer. They would just say, hey, we have this artist that we want to promote. We just signed them. Let's do three posts, you know, on, on this yeah. account. Right. Yeah. And, and it just felt like, you know, there were some months where our revenue was great. There were some months where I'm like, oh my God, we're burning way too much money. And there are other yeah. months where I'm like, oh, we're back. You know, I'm feeling great. So it just <laughs> kind of felt like a roller coaster. And I really didn't want to deal with a business model like that. I wanted to deal with recurring revenue. So I started thinking a little bit more about, you know, if I was to build a software product, what would it be? And I thought, again, going back to the problems that I saw with customers we had at Dunk, one of the key issues is that they didn't know who their audience was. Like they'd come to us and they wouldn't know, you know, if they had influential people following them on Instagram or Twitter, they wouldn't know on a week by week basis who were the most engaged people that were liking and commenting on every single one of their posts. And I thought kind of focusing on that problem initially might be cool.
0: That's awesome. So you started yeah. that and like, I mean, talk me through like the actual, I think a lot of people listen to this show because it's like, aside from like, oh, you just started true fan, like the real details of like, how, how did you actually get it started? I mean, what, what did the, what did the first couple of weeks look like? Like what did you do to start the company?
1: Yeah. We put together a team fairly quickly. Like, again, this is just me networking the time. So I, I put together an initial team of five people. Um, it's actually funny, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but, and I don't think I've even actually publicly said this before, but Nick Sharma, who's obviously like one of the best direct to consumer e-commerce guys out there. He's incredibly big on Twitter. Now. Uh, he runs his own company, Sharma Brands. He was actually someone I had poached to be our, our, our CMO of TrueFan. Uh, and this is like four and a half years ago. So at the time he was working for Hint, Hint Water, uh, and he hadn't left Hint Water yet. So, Yeah, we put together this initial squad of members. I found my co founder, Onik, because he was at Stanford at the time. He was very technical, so I knew having him on board would be great to kind of build out version one of the product. And we just got it started with the product first. Like, we knew that, you know, with this type of kind of business, it didn't matter, you know, if we were like the most charming people or if we raised the most money. Uh, for this, you know, we really just had to get to product market fit first. Like we had to actually confirm whether or not the problem that we were tackling actually existed and whether you know, companies were willing to pay for it, which is actually, by the yeah. way, the definition, in my opinion, of product market fit. It's not as much like, do people find your idea useful? It's are they yeah. willing to pay for it? That's the second part that a lot of people miss out on. Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to validate that before ideally you go and raise money. So that's what we yeah. did. We had a couple mm-hmm. of like beta customers lined up. Uh, and after about six months of building out the product with those customers and getting their direct feedback, we then decided to go and do a fundraise. And we raised about, I think it was 750000 from about 27 investors, all angels. We did a purely angel round. Um, and we were asking for checks like anywhere between 10 k all the way up to 100 k So there was like a crazy range, um, but we were just getting going. You know, we just needed capital to be able to hire a couple more people, mainly on the engineering side. And we moved the entire company to Vancouver and we were building out of the Hootsuite office because Ryan Holmes came on as an investor and kind of gave us access to his entire office space, which is nice. So that's the initial story for, for how Truefen got off the ground. It is worth noting, like things I missed out on saying, product delays definitely happened throughout our first year. We had a lot of failed hires. We had people who I thought were going to be like committed to the company that just weren't committed. Or people that just generally weren't interested in what we were building. And we had to easily, you know, like not easily, like in a hard way, but we had to quickly get rid of them. And, you know, we also had uh, a trademark violation, you know, kind of four or five months into the company. Our initial name when we started was Superfan, and we had to change it to Truefan kind of within three or four months because. We got a cease and desist letter from a company that said we couldn't use Superfan as our name. And again, you know, twenty years old, did not want to fight this, you know, especially because our lawyers were like, it's gonna cost you a lot. So we were like, you know what? It's fine.
0: we were like, yeah, fuck it. We'll just change our name. I'm sorry. We'll just change our <laughs> name. And it's funny, my
1: mom actually came up with the idea of true fan. She she actually though she, 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 she spelt it differently. She didn't spell it in a cool way. She she spelt it T-R-U-E-F-A-N, like true, like full word. And I'm like, yeah. no, what, no, no, we're gonna take the E out and and so i kind of take credit for the for the, for the name now
0: <laughs> there you go thanks mom um yeah. <laughs> so so tell me I, I mean so swish this is like part of what i went back to right just like your enthusiasm and this like sort of endearing charisma you have like you're a college dropout you had like been part of building an nba fan account mm-hmm. um and you go and approach these like triple a people i mean computer science. Uh, grads from Stanford and Sharma, you know, like who's now's, you know, one of the best marketing minds, whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you just kind of breathe through that. You're like, yeah, I just like reached out to these people and got them all, you know, to join the company. (laughs) Like that's no, that's no small feat. Um, I mean, what, what do you credit your ability to attract really strong people to? Because at the time, like objectively, if you look at it, it's like, I mean, building the dunk account was really cool, but like you didn't have, like a phenomenal cv no no i
1: mean i I had a really good cv if again if i wanted to go into academia right like i like i had a lot going for myself there like in terms of debate and what i had done there and i i i knew that you know that might be something that also you know gets a lot of people potentially to me because debate actually opened up so many channels for me like because of debating on the national team I met like an incredibly amount of like smart, smart people, like people who yes. did not just also go on to be a lawyer, but they went on to like be diplomats or they went on to, for example, like go and, and, and be consultants or, or work yeah. as bankers. Um, I also felt like it opened up my channels in terms of also winning awards. So I did win like the United Nations Outstanding Youth Leadership Award. I won top 20 out of 20 in Canada. And like, you know, at, at that age, you know, I think people look at those types of awards and they see them as like, okay, this is like a really, good sign of somebody as like, they're smart, they know what they're talking about. And I'm willing to really believe their vision, because I feel like they're qualified, like they know what they're saying. So I think that is one aspect to it. I think the second aspect is just just me being a good person. I mean, again, like, like you've mentioned, like, I didn't really have an entrepreneurial win, I didn't have a, a, you know, an exit or anything that I could say, Hey, guys, look like credibility, you know, I I built something before, (laughs) Uh, I didn't have that. (laughs) Um, but I think for me, what I did have and just brute honesty, you know, like when I went up to people like Nick, for example, when I went up to people like Onik, I literally told them, I'm like, Hey, this is going to be my first rodeo, but I know a lot about the space because I've been thinking so much about this problem. I have all this research that I've done, but more yeah. importantly, I also have all these customers who I know I could immediately go to and say, Hey, can you test out our product? Cause I, I again, did a really good job networking. So I think the network as well as well as the honesty of me just admitting to people like, hey, I don't know everything, but that's what's gonna make this fun, kind of helped a lot of people feel like, okay, you know, we do want to definitely come on board and potentially see how this goes. Yeah. I
0: love yeah. it. Yeah. And so you have like is, a clear
1: it, so yeah. that that is a big problem that I know a lot of generally just young entrepreneurs run into, right? Is credibility. I mean, I bet you you've interacted with a lot of younger founders as well. And I mean, I don't know if you have any advice for them generally when it comes to credibility because i feel like the the number one question i typically get from young entrepreneurs is like how do i how do i get seen as a credible person like how do i raise money when people feel like i don't even know anything when i'm a college student or whatever
0: yeah yeah for sure i mean so there's two aspects to it there's like credibility and there's vision right and like what you just talked about is like you just overly focused on vision because you didn't really yet have the credibility um Mm. but i think people are so number one is like vision is very rare. Uh, True vision is very rare. And number two is Mm -hmm. kind of, I don't know if these are correlated or what the order of correlation is, but partly because vision is so rare, it's very, very attractive, Um, especially to like high performing people. Um, And the reason is, is like you you don't often find somebody where you meet them and you're like, wow, I'm a hundred percent confident that like they know where they're going and they know how to get there. And like, Right. That is a really important first step in building anything, right? It's like having a plan um, and mm. actually being able to lay that plan out in a way that is inspiring and also makes sense that there's like logical steps to like, this is how we're going to do this. There's yep. going to be a lot of learnings along the way, but here's the general path we're going forward. Um, yeah, And it's sort of like, like it, it, it inspires this this innate interest i think that humans have in like adventure is like we don't Mm -hmm. exactly know what the journey is going to be like but we know which direction we're going so like if you you went and like rounded up a bunch of people and you're like hey do you just want to like walk around aimlessly with me Mm -hmm. it's like no you wouldn't Mm -hmm. get a whole lot of people but if you're like hey like you want to round a group together and like go to the top of kilimanjaro right like some percentage of people who are like really into adventure would be like hell yeah i'd definitely do that like that sounds like a cool thing try to do and you don't really know exactly what every day is going to look like and how to get there and do this and that blah 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 but Mm. um being able to have the vision piece like people are really attracted to that and so what i would say uh is for founders who are don't have like it's your first rodeo like you said like you don't have uh the credibility um and oftentimes that's a good thing like having credibility is Oftentimes really dangerous like credibility without vision is very dangerous because like people mm-hmm. will follow for the wrong reasons <laughs> Yep. Yep. Um, yep. 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 Like aimlessly is, So two things I think my advice to founders would be one first of all is assess whether or not you want to be the visionary Right. Mm-hmm. So being a visionary in a company is a very specific role. I think personally it's like it should be the CEO Um mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be, but like generally I think that's what the CEO's role is to like make sure that we know where we're going and that I'm moving the obstacles we need and I'm putting the right people in the right places to actually get us there. But mostly I'm just making sure we're all heading in the right direction. Um, so what I would say first as a founder is decide if that's actually the job that you want. And, um, I think there's a lot of tests that you can do on you growing up as a child. What kind of things are you attracted to? Do you like structure? Do you dislike structure? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Because yep. if you're not someone who's naturally inclined to want to be the visionary, um, you're much better off finding someone who is and being on their executive team.
1: Right. 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 right, right, right. Yeah. And yep, you'll yep, be a lot right, happier
0: right. because you'll have someone who can like what I would say, like the downside of the visionary is you're the, per- and this is the downside, but I also think it's the, a really, really good CEO or I'm just gonna say CEO. Cause like I, I'm very opinionated about like the CEO should be the visionary. Your job yep. is to face the existential, right? Yep. Like yep. Your, your job is to like stare into the abyss and yep. be able to like hold hold the line of like, this is what we're doing despite there being lots of existential dread about like, is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? Are we doing it correctly? Is there an opportunity here? Like there's all these questions that come up is number one is to be able to face that and and sort of stay steadfast in your vision. But number two is to shield your team from that. to be able to turn around and say like guys you don't have to worry about any of this right like you can completely take any of the existential questions off your plate um and just focus on getting us where we need to go and here's the next step and this and that but i think a really good ceo lets their team achieve 10x productivity 10x you know happiness 10 times better products 10 times faster growth because their team's able to operate in an environment where they're not like defaulting back to the existential questions every day of like, what are we doing? Is this actually gonna work? This and that, blah, blah, blah. So because of that, I think it's like a disposition. Like some people really like phasing the existential and kind of staring into the abyss. And some Mm -hmm. people really don't. And I, I think that's totally fine. I think it's also important that I don't personally see the CEO as a step higher on the hierarchy than the executive team. I just see it as a specific role. And it's like, because of the function of that role, everyone technically reports to that person. But really what that person is doing is just making sure that like everyone can operate in the safety of the vision of the company. And each of us individually don't have to like think through all the existential questions of what we're doing. Yep, exactly. I agree. So first and foremost, I would say is like uh, deciding whether or not you like that role or you would rather uh, be given kind of a firm set of objectives and just work towards accomplishing those objectives and you're getting positive and negative feedback along the way, et cetera, et cetera. So first decide if you want to be the visionary or not. And and to that, I think it determines um, how you would go about like joining the founding team of a company. Um, If you are the visionary in your case, um, my case as well, right? Like I fit sort of the visionary profile. I really don't like being told what to do. And, and, and I don't like, uh, constrained environments, right? I would much rather like, de- like wade into the existential than just be told like, here's what you need to do this now, blah, 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 Um, is like the biggest point of leverage you can have is become very good at like painting a vision, inspiring and attracting other people to that vision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and you know, going back to what I said before, like number one is it's inspiring. So it's like a worthwhile cause. Right. Um, so, um, being able to attach, from a high level, like why solving the problem that you solve, like, you know, there's like, you can tap into like the moral imperative of it, but like it drives the world forward. It makes the world a better place for some specific set of stakeholders. Um, And then I think specificity. So the other end of the spectrum is being able to convince people that like, it's not just this like pie in the sky vision where anybody could say like, hey, wouldn't it be great if energy was free? It's like, okay, that's highly aspirational, but not specific. Yeah. So it has to be aspirational and specific at the same time. And then I think really smart people will buy in and say like, yes, I do think I would love to have that impact on the world. And two is like, it sounds like you really know how to get there. And that gives me a lot of confidence that this is a good opportunity. Yep. Um, And I agree. Yeah, those are my thoughts on.
1: No, I love them. And I mean, as you scale, one of the things I've even realized is beyond even just being a gatekeeper of vision, one of my kind of key tasks on a weekly basis is just securing alignment. Like that word alignment has become like very much synonymous with what I see my role as CEO as now, where yeah. my goal literally every week is just to make sure that, okay, especially among our executive team, but even just broadly as a team, we are all aligned on, you know, what that vision is. <laughs> where we need to go in the short term and where we're trying to go in the long term and just making sure yeah, people exactly. don't fall out of sync or get you know overwhelmed by any means where they can't actually see what the goal post actually is so that that has become probably the biggest part of my job is just making sure that i over communicate that uh and just making sure people continue to stay for, focused on like the north <laughs> star
0: yeah yeah exactly so one thing i like to think about is like if you ask somebody would you rather go uh would you rather go on vacation with three other people or 30 other people <laughs> which one three or thirty? yeah for me
1: for me probably 30. <laughs> okay why 30. Yeah. Uh, i just think i'm a little bit more comfortable when it comes to just being able to bounce around people and like yeah you know, i don't know i just <laughs> also think like the story itself would be more fun there's way more stuff yeah. you could probably do it also depends yeah. right like if this is like 30 people i don't know versus three people i really know well obviously i'd pick three people But i'm just assuming i know them generally all well if, my, if I, if they you know, if I could bring 30 people out on a trip, I mean, it would be pretty legendary.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. What about you so, uh, Probably the same. Um, yeah. But I think it's an interesting thought experiment because it, it, it's very reflective of like the dynamics of a team as it grows, right? So like if you were to go on vacation with three other people, so there's four people, the mm-hmm. amount of things that you can do increases yep. dramatically. The speed at which you can make decisions increases dramatically because there's just like less stakeholders. So I think a lot of people would get stressed just thinking about like being on vacation with 30 people and just like you'd never be able to make decisions. You'd never be able to all agree on what you're doing for dinner. Even if you did agree, you'd never be able to get reservations, et cetera. And I think it's like very, it's very indicative of like what it's like to scale a team where it's like there's a lot more work that goes into just making this group work together effectively because you can't just rely on automatic alignment with a small group of people, um, versus a big group of people. And it's the same thing with a team. It's like, if you have three people on your team, the four of you can sit down and make decisions really fast. And the, Mm -hmm. the, the bandwidth of information sharing is very, very high. Um, whereas with 30 people, like it's a much heavier lift and there has to be real infrastructure in place to make those decisions and to create a culture around decision-making, which is like, Hey, like, Yep. Um, With a team of four, you don't really necessarily need a culture of decision making because you just kind of discuss things and um, come up to some pseudo alignment where it's like, all right, everyone feels comfortable enough to move forward with this. Whereas 30 people, it's like you really do have to instill culture is like, are are we going to let everybody vote? Does everyone's votes count equally? Is there some sort of hierarchy here? Who has more Mm -hmm. say than others? Like that stuff needs to be in place for a team of 30 to operate. I agree. The
1: beauty, though, is that you don't have to go like, hopefully and this is the beauty of startups as opposed to going on vacation, but like you don't obviously have to go right to 30 people right away. Right. So like maybe yeah. you incrementally go from like, OK, we'll take four people out. Now we'll take 10 people out the next year. OK, we'll do a group of 15 now, 25. And like over time, the leaders of that group will appear people that like yeah. will probably lead decision making in some way and, and try to obviously still make it consensus based, but still. You know, make the final decision at the end of the day and, and kind of set the itinerary and get the kind of show on the road and, and get people committed to going, that person or you know, generally a smaller group of people will appear hopefully over time. And that's one thing I've even noticed with our team is like, I think a lot of people generally are very quick in an early company to associate executive members right away. I actually feel like if possible, it's fine for some roles, Like, I think obviously having like a COO is not a bad idea, obviously right away. Um, But I think for certain roles, like a CFO, for example, or even like a CMO, I would wait if possible, like I would wait to see, you know, maybe a year or a year and a half later when your kind of company's identity is actually formed, when your product's actually in a place where you're selling it to people, when you actually are in need of a marketing budget or you're actually in need of a CFO. It might be good to then look at your existing team and say, okay, over time, who has kind of come to the top now? Who has like gradually, because of not only their skill set, but because of their role and how other people perceive them in the company, have elevated in their position. And like try to see if you can try to bring those people into the executive team as opposed to, you know, I think hiring out of an executive team right away and appointing people right away can actually make it really tough for you to hire really good A players later on. because they just feel like, hey, there's no room at the top. You know, there's no room for me to join this executive team probably in like three or four years because, you know, the CEO is like buddies with all the, you know, all the executives. And is it's, you know, very, very like, you know, clearly on their side and not somebody who's likely going to change their opinion anytime soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, I think that it takes a company a while to figure out who you are. Yeah. It's not obvious from day one. I mean, look at you, this example of like, you guys completely pivoted businesses. But even yeah, once yeah. you became surf and focused on data, it still takes a long time for the company to like really figure out who it is yep. and what our culture yep. is. And I think if you hire, if you just like build out this, like, all right, what are all the positions we theoretically need to build a business? Like C- mm-hmm. COO, CMO, CFO, blah, blah, blah. And you like go through this like theoretical executive committee yep. and you hire yep. all those people. It's like, you don't yet really know who you are. So now there's like lots of voices and lots of opinions all trying to figure out who you are. And Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen, I've seen teams get really off base um, because they weren't the right people or they were hired premature. I think there's something to be said for like hiring senior people prematurely. Right, 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 Um, right. right. And then like you said, is like the longer you wait, if, if things are going well, which the assumption is, is like, you know, you're, you're, as the founders focus on growing the company, really figuring out who you are, figuring out your product really well, figuring out your sales motion, really, really deeply understanding your customer, Um, (coughs) fundraising, the longer you wait, the higher quality candidates you can bring on board when you are ready. Yeah, I agree, I agree. And then to say like, hey, we really know who we are. We wanna bring you on to help us figure out what's the next stage of marketing for Surf. What does that look like? Uh, Off of a foundation of us knowing how we got here. yeah. So Swish, can you I mean where is Surf now, right? Like so we talked so, about well. uh getting it off the ground. I mean where you are today in December of yep. or I guess it's still November, but this'll yeah, come out well. in December of twenty twenty two. Yeah, and you're
1: you're end, can't believe it. Um we're at over <laughs> two hundred fifty thousand users now for surf. So I'm very excited about that. We're successfully now in three three countries. So we're in the US, we're available in Canada, and we just launched a few weeks ago in the United Kingdom. So we're available in the UK as well. The goal actually by the end of next year is to be at 1.3 million users. We're hoping to be expanding to six more regions in 2023. So Italy, Spain, Portugal, the Philippines, India, and Brazil, uh, and that'll be across you know, the entire year. We're gonna be focused on expanding to a couple of other regions that can help us accelerate either growth along with a number of other measures we're going to be doubling down on. And then on the, on the revenue side, we're at about 60 data customers now. And, you know, a lot of really like low logos that I think, I, I think our team is very proud of, you know, Netflix, L'Oreal, electronic arts, HP, Amazon, prime gaming, big, big enterprises is who we typically deal with. And we're growing quickly in the sense of like we were a team right now, 27 people full time, we're excited to obviously get to, uh, you know, hire a couple more people on our sales team, get our mobile solution out for Surf as well, so people can earn points for their mobile browsing data, not just their desktop browsing data, expand to a few more regions, like I mentioned, and double down on our paid marketing budget. And that's pretty much it. You know, like, I think going into 2023, we're really trying to focus more on growth across the company. And that's kind of exciting, because I think for the last three and a half, four years, like you've mentioned, I mean, we've just been trying to figure out who we were and what is the billion dollar vision and how do we, you know, build everything, the team, the product to focus on that billion dollar vision. And so I think we've done a good job now of establishing that, building a really good foundation to hopefully springboard off from.
0: Yeah, I love that. And uh, like, so to get into the technical details, right? So solving the like third party data problem, right? So the- internet that we live off of right now is essentially free uh, in exchange for like we're giving away all of in the beginning it was like our user data like what were we actually doing on the internet what websites were we visiting etc but over the last like 10 to 15 years thousands and thousands of data points have gotten laid over that and as the devices that we carry around are more sophisticated there's just more and more data being created both primary data. So, where am I when I'm looking at this website? What am I doing? Who am I getting close with? But also, thousands of data points around like insight, second and third level data, which is like, well, based on where you are and what you're looking at, right? What other things could we assume about you? Or I think yep. one thing that people get really freaked out about is like, I just talked about this thing and then I got retarded yeah. <laughs> for it. A lot of that it is. Was an ad. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a lot of that is actually insight data from who you came close to. Um, mm-hmm. so for example, like, uh, if you and I were to spend a few hours together, our devices would see that we spent a few hours together and some of the things that you've been retargeted for would show up for me and vice versa. And what they're guessing is that you may have talked about some of the things that are like top of mind right now. And then oh. it appears to be like, oh my God, they're listening to my conversations. Um. And that's all built off of a world where the internet is free and everything on the internet is free because we give all this data away that's incredibly valuable to advertisers. So like the world that Surf is building, like what does that world look like in comparison to like the current paradigm we're living in?
1: I think you nailed this to me a while ago. I think when we initially talked about it, um that should have been probably a year ago you mentioned like we are going to live in a participation economy and that's something we're really excited about trying to build out in terms of data um is this idea that well for the last again 15 years people have you know shared their data typically they don't know what they're sharing uh sometimes brands didn't even ask them for permission and just took their data and then they obviously you know people didn't get anything back for it um and you know we we felt i think at a certain point that okay, the data we're sharing clearly is quite personal at times, like you know, what I'm looking at, what I'm browsing, who I am, where I'm located. This is data that I can be quite personal. And so is there a way for me now to A, have the ability to control what it is I do and don't share, and B, can I earn from it? And so that's, again, what Surf is trying to do is we're trying to help you in any aspect of your digital footprint, not just browsing data. I think that's what we started off with, but it doesn't just stop there. It could be app usage data, it could be purchasing data, it could be fitness data, it could be geolocation data. Whatever is attached to your digital footprint, we think that people should have the ability if they want to, to earn from it and to share it. And so that's what we're trying to do with Surf and build it as like a data partner for people and build it as a vehicle for people to monetize their data if they want that option. Do I want the entire world to use Surf? Absolutely. Do I think the entire world will use Surf? No. Am I fine with that? Yes because it's totally somebody's choice if they wanna monetize their data. If you wanna be ultra private, if you wanna use DuckDuckGo only, if you wanna use Neva only, go for it. I'm not trying to convince people to not be private or to not you know, double down on their privacy, but I'm hoping that people do see that there's a happy medium as well here where you can focus on your privacy while also potentially getting something back for the data you do wanna share. And so that's what I'm trying to build is that happy medium that again, hasn't existed for, for quite a long time.
0: Got you. And and so can we just double click one case into, so you talk about like sharing the data and companies paying for it, but how does that actually work, right? So like on your Mm. website, for example, you've got Sephora, right? So how does this new interaction work with say Sephora?
1: Yeah, Sephora will come on and they'll provide a reward. They'll provide like a discount or they'll provide a gift card and they'll live in our marketplace and in order to get it you obviously have to use your surf points um the user of surf will browse like they normally do you know you'll just literally like every time you open your laptop and start a new internet session we don't again show you ads we don't require you to take surveys we don't require you to click specific links we don't require you to go and buy something first in order to get points back we're not a cashback program we don't require you to do anything actively except for browse like you already did so as long as you're just browsing like you normally do um, and as long as you're sharing data with us in terms of where you're going on the internet, you will get points that you can then use for those rewards directly. I think what's really cool is, you know, customers like Sephora. They actually are not data customers; they're reward partners for us. So we do have like kind of these two types of enterprises now that interact with us. There's a small overlap, but there are customers that come on and they they don't really care that much about our behavior data. They care more about just getting in front of our user base. They want to provide rewards that allow them to see Surf as a customer acquisition channel that's hopefully cheaper than paid ads. So that's why they're offering a $20 off next purchase code, a $25 gift card, because they're trying to hedge their bet against paid ads. And then you have, secondly, these data customers like the Netflixes and the Amazon Prime Gamings of the world that are excited to understand user behavior data on the internet. The one thing that I don't think I've mentioned throughout that I probably should mention is all the data we do share with companies is anonymized. So that's another big reason why I think we've grown so quickly on the user side is because when a user comes on to Surf, they don't provide their first and last name. We don't know who they are. Like we ask them for general high-level demographic info, like their age, gender, location so we can bucket them appropriately. But we don't ask for any personally identifiable info because we don't care who an individual user is. We care about them more as an aggregate, as a collective, and try to sell their data based on that.
0: Got you. Got you. <clears throat> Very cool. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I guess one of the biggest challenges with like switching the world over to this new paradigm is like the chicken and the egg problem, right? Is like, yeah. Y- yeah, users have to opt in to switch over to this via the browser they use and the data that's collected and then advertisers have to agree to switch over simultaneously. And it like has to, it has to change in lockstep because like advertisers don't want to switch over until there's actually useful data for them to use and to Mm -hmm. purchase and, 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 and vice versa. Right. I think another interesting, I mean, I've worked in e-commerce for the better part of the first chapter in my career. And, I think one thing that people really underestimate is like how unusable the internet is without user data, right? Like yeah. <laughs> people, don't, people don't realize that like everything on the internet, like the, the one thing you talk about is like re, retargeting, right? And a lot of retargeting is actually quite unsophisticated. It's like you went mm-hmm. to a website and there's a cookie in your browser history and, and there's you know, there was a Facebook pixel or whatever and you're just targeting that one specific Facebook pixel. It's not very sophisticated. Yep. What a lot of people yep. don't understand is like almost every website you visit, especially when it comes to shopping, Amazon.com, for example, it's all curated. Like if I visit Amazon.com and you visit Amazon.com, we'll see very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. the, the sorting algorithms and the pages that you land on and like the whole internet is really curated to you specifically. And I think a lot of people would be quite overwhelmed if they were just like thrown into the raw internet, if, if, if none, none of the websites knew who you were, knew nothing about you, it'd be really hard to use the internet.
1: Um, 100% agree, 100% agree.
0: And so there's this like fine balance between op- there is, there is real utility to having yep. things be known about you when you're browsing the internet. Um, yep. But there is a world where like that data is yours and you can decide who and who doesn't get to see it. And you can opt in and you can opt out at any time, yep. right? Like GD- GDPR and CCPA like, they put the legislative blocks in place. They don't really solve the technology problem of like all this stuff is still being stored in third party databases. And like, mm. you know, I, if, if I call a website right now and I'm like, Hey, via CCPA, I demand you <laughs> delete all my information. Like, yeah. let's be honest. The real answer is like, we're going to say yes on the phone, but like, we've got no fucking idea how to even do that. Like, even if we no. could, we wouldn't be able to like fully delete and find yep. every single thing we have about you. Cause it's like, all obfuscated across many different databases, deep within our, it's like not possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. For us, like and we, so we was... had to go through so much pain in order to be able to do that. Like we, we yeah. built our entire system on Elasticsearch on our backend and if anybody listening has experience with Elasticsearch, they'll know that everything is clustered based. So for us, like, you know, if somebody, for example, emailed us saying, hey, we'd like to delete our account as well as delete every single piece of history we ever shared before, we can do that, but the problem is we first have to then identify what cluster that individual is a part of. Past finding the cluster, we then have to go deeper into the cluster and understand, okay, what age, gender, demographic did they fit, and then we have to go <laughs> yeah. and delete them. So it is quite a tedious process. It, it is something we can easily do you know, compared to other companies, like you mentioned, but I can only yeah. imagine some companies that like, they don't even know where to start. They don't even understand yeah. their data infrastructure, let alone figuring yeah. out how to go and delete somebody from it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It'd be impossible. It's a it's a standard that very few companies could ever actually live up to. I mean, it's like the legislation yeah. is meant well, right? But yeah. It's an example of the difference between like legislation and then what's actually feasible, right? Whereas like yep, the like anyone who works in this space, like there's a very clear picture of what the future looks like and what the ideal scenario would be, which is like all of your first party data is local. To you, it's yep. stored on your local device, and there's yep. zero, zero knowledge proofs that roll up to anyone who's asking for your data, and you can set broad rules, and then you can spe- set specific rules, and even mm-hmm. when you let your data be accessible by another company, like the zk proofs are solving the problem of like I'm not actually giving up any of my first party data anyways. I'm just answering yes or no. Am I a male? Right. Yeah. yeah or yes or yeah, no. Yeah. Am I within this? age range and if that helps them give me a better experience on their website then great but they don't have to ever there's not a single data entry that goes into their database anything about me right they just mm. got an answer to my data that's stored on my local device yep. the challenge is is like the entire internet is built on a different paradigm so like how yeah. you, you can't just like turn the internet off and switch over one day and like turn it all back on so it's like yeah, it's yeah. actually a really tricky problem and in like incrementally solving it and it seems like like one of the ways you guys are getting around this is through your point system, which is like, well, we can pay you in points to start to adopt new behavior and then slowly bring on partners who are willing to redeem those points. And that's sort of an incremental way to move people in the right direction. Cause like, that's a better world for everybody. It's a better world for advertisers. Cause then you're like, Hey, people opt in if they want to see your product. Like Elon Musk with Twitter, he talks about like, I don't remember what the word he used, but like radically, uh, relevant advertising it's like advertising if it's super duper relevant is actually really valuable for consumers yeah yeah. right and like the ideal world is like i only ever see brands that i really really want and need their products and brands only ever spend on impressions for people who meet that criteria but in exchange the brands don't have to ever store my personal data which by the way they don't care as long as they're getting served to the right people they don't want to store that data
1: no they don't they want to move on yeah they don't care and that's
0: the thing is people are like oh companies have all of this data et cetera. it's like first of all there's very few companies who are actually using that data for nefarious reasons facebook being Ooh. the most recognizable one and there's maybe a few Ooh. others who even have enough data to like <laughs> impact yep. elections et cetera. Et cetera. Yep. the reality Ooh. is most of your data is being used by small businesses who run on shopify and they're trying to find their customer base and maybe you know they're custom-made dog socks and there's 15,000 customers for them globally, and the faster they could find those 15,000 customers, the better for the business, the better for their customers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, like, if you could build a world where it's like, we don't want to store your data, we don't want you to have to call us to delete your credit card transaction data that's stored in our database and this and that, blah, blah, blah. the internet could function a lot more effectively. It's just a process of, like, how do you switch it's it great. all
1: over? Yep, great,
0: And it's tough. Because, like you said, like, there's also a participation bias of, like, a lot of people don't think about like one of the reasons why <laughs> the internet exists where it's like give all your data is like a lot of people don't think about it a lot of people don't care it's like I don't really care right like, oh, Literally. like we, we, they're like I don't care if Google knows where I am and yeah I think if you live if you live and work in tech your bias there's like an availability bias of an opinion of like it's really dangerous to let Amazon listen to what's going on in your house and it's like yes but most people don't care. <laughs> no, most
1: so, people don't care. That's actually why I, I really think, don't. even when we were coming up with our product, we literally built our product for those people who didn't care because we were like, well, yeah, yeah we could have a lot of good like, privacy-focused messaging on our website and try to entice people by being like, well, you know, let's look at all the history of privacy and how privacy has unfolded, and let's take a look at you know, why regulation recently has actually stepped in the right direction. But like, frankly, nobody cares. So we thought, okay, why don't we first incentivize people through rewards? Because everybody wants savings wherever they can get them, right? Like honey is a reason, air miles is another reason. Like there's so many like case studies of companies that have just gotten big because they just help people save money on everyday purchases. And so we felt, okay, let's start there and then start educating people over time about data. But again, we're not trying to like, I agree, like there's so many good benefits off your data being utilized by companies, whether it is for highly relevant advertising, whether it is for a personalized internet experience, which is, you know, incredibly nice for us to have, like, it's it's definitely a luxury. But I think yeah. one thing I definitely feel is if people were in control of their data, when situations like a data leak occurred, when situations like Cambridge Analytica occurred at least people would have some sort of mechanism, hopefully to fall back upon where they can do something about it. I think the problem when these situations happen is that the average consumer will just feel helpless. You know, like, it's like when Facebook, for example, would send us a notification saying we had a massive data leak and you might have been a part of it. It's like, well, I'd like, what do I do about it? Like, I can't do anything about it other than just delete yeah, exactly. my account, I guess. But like, what thanks, do I do about it? Thanks for this thanks.
0: informative email. Facebook yeah, like,
1: it scared the fuck out of me. Like, I don't know what to do now. So well, I think just having some ability of ownership would be nice. Um, even if people don't even utilize it, I think just having the feeling like I own my data, there is some sort of benefit to that as well. That is a little bit hard for me to measure right now. But hopefully over the next few years, I can I can measure that a bit more accurately.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure and that's so like i mean now is a very relevant time to talk about like actual u- u- utility of the blockchain right and like yeah I, I i personally am like a bitcoin maximalist i think the only currency that's ever going to be valuable on on the blockchain is bitcoin um mm-hmm. and other than that i think like zk's zk roll-ups are probably to me the most apparent utility for the blockchain, right? Which is like Mm -hmm. solving the problem of like, hey, like instead of trying to convince people to do the right thing with the data, just create a system where they don't ever have to have it. So like Cambridge Analytica can't happen because you can't pull that information out of a yes or no binary answer to a question. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And even if you did try to, because it's on the blockchain, the users whose data you're trying to pull would be alerted that like someone's trying, someone, Cambridge Analytica is querying your block and asking yep. all these questions. And you could say, stop letting them query my block. Exactly. So like, I don't even want to give them the roll up. Don't let this user, and they would have to keep switching users. So like you could create a world where if you didn't care, great, but the peace of mind would be like that data is not going anywhere anyways. And if you did care, you could get really granular about yep. who yep. sees what about me. And even when they do get an answer over what's my gender, where do I live, this and that, it's not actually telling yeah. them yep. right, that I live in Austin. It's telling them, do you live in Texas? Yes or no? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay, great. If that's yeah. all you need to know to serve me a relevant yeah. ad, boom, there's your answer. Yeah, so, exactly.
1: I, I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I've been thinking a little bit more about it. I mean, it's not a part of our immediate roadmap, but definitely something we've thought a little bit about is, you know, can we take our existing system that we built and decentralize it? Could we build more of a query-based system as opposed to even a dashboard? Like right now, we have a dashboard with visualizations and graphs, and here's the audience behavior split across gender and location and age. Um, but is there a way that instead of building that, we could just build a query system for enterprises where like they would just come on and any key question they care about, let's say you care about how many people in Toronto, Canada have listened to the new Taylor Swift album in the last month. Right. And like, I just wanted to only know that I could come on and instead of having to slice and dice the audience myself and kind of go through the data and try to figure it out on my own, I could just go into this query based system and put a question in and it'll populate with any relevant data from the source and again the source like you said are people who literally have the ability to know when they're being queried get compensated every time they are being queried and can also decide to just get away from it altogether like if they want that granular control to say i don't want this brand or i don't want this company querying my data they can take that off right away that has just been something we've thought a lot about Is like is that potentially where we need to go down the road i don't I don't feel like again it's part of our immediate roadmap, but it's definitely on on our on our kind of mind share, if you will, every single time we have an executive call or, or almost every week, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean the problem the challenge is, is like, so in order to create like the mass queryable wow. like databases, right, you have to have some people won't the user won't put their data into a new system. Yeah. Right. In order to have it be like mass. Queryable, right? There's no Ooh. immediate value, right? So, mm-hmm. what I always think about with like the adoption of this new technology is you have to figure out like the baseline transaction yeah. level, like where are people actually exchanging transactional information? And you got to start yep. there and you got to yep. create value there. And then over time, the users there will create a database that you can yep. start to sell. Like, hey, you can actually come in and query how many people podcast yep. Swift, And like, yep. as someone who worked in e commerce, right? the most interesting place to me, Uh like if I were to build out we're going to build a, you and I are going to build out a ZK rollup data company, right? I would Mm -hmm. start. So here's exactly how I do it. Right. I would create a platform. Users can sign up. It explains the whole value proposition. It's, Hey, you can put in as much or as little information as you want into this database. Right. And it will be really personal stuff. And Here's how we're going to store it. It's going to be stored on the blockchain. It'll be sharded. You'll have the key. You'll you'll have the sole key to this block. That'll have all this information in it, blah, blah, blah. And um, what it will allow you to do is elect yes or no, whether you want individual entities to be able to access any one or all of this data. And when they do, yep. it won't be the first party data. It'll be a ZK, right? It'll, mm-hmm. it'll be binary. Okay. So you build that side. Then you go to the, and so the, Then the question is is like, well, okay, only a very small portion of people will sign up for that that are like early adopters who like really care about internet anonymity. So I have to create some incentive for people to sign up. You mentioned it before. Saving money is like the best incentive for anything. So I go on the other end and I go to retailers and I say, hey, I'm building the ZK roll-up platform. What it will allow you to do is I will bring you onto our platform. I will alert you. So I'll give you a cookie that says yes or no, does somebody have my plugin on their browser, right? And what I'll allow you to do is based on that yes or no question, build campaigns that query that user's data through my system. And here's all the questions that you can, but it's basically a, uh, it's a, it's just its own language, right? So it's like, you know, data point, Yes, no, or above, below this and that. There's all sorts of different ranges that you can do. Blah blah blah. Yep. And yep. on the retailer, what it'll say is basically it allows you to say, do they have the browser extension? Yes or no. If so, run these queries. If why if, you know, if this is true, take them to this page or sort the algorithm or sort the page this way. If this mm-hmm. is true, give them a 25% discount. If this is true, do yep. this. If this is true, do this. And build really specific campaigns. And then you go back to the users and you say, hey, by the way, you're gonna start to see, here's all the websites we work with right now, so you should go visit them. And when the user goes into the website, what they see is, hey, uh, Swish's sneaker shop wants to know X, Y, Z about you. In exchange, they'll give you a 25% discount. And you say, yes, click, let them know where I live, let them know this and that. And then what I get taken to is like a customized page for me based on their campaign on the back end. And then I would just slowly work my way through retailers, trusting that like every new retailer will be more and more value for the users. Yep, I agree. And and basically build, and, and eventually what I would do is like first it's a plugin and you can download it on any internet device. And the assumption would be that like, we're building a secondary system inside the first system. Cause like all of your, all the old paradigm data is still being collected from you, from Chrome or Safari or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then eventually like phase two or phase three of my product roadmap would be my own browser. Right. So then it's yeah. like, now you're not creating any data for anybody anymore, all of your data through this browser. So if a web because then it's like, say I get f- 500,000 global people who download my browser. Then I can go to retailers and say, if, if somebody visits from my browser and you haven't come onto our system from a retailer perspective, it's going to be an absolute black box. It'll be an incognito user and your uh, yep. conversion rates will plummet.
1: Yep, 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 yep. I think that's genius. I, it's almost like creating like a, a modern day, like, I agree button. Like, when you yeah. have like cookies, right? Like, you're accepting a company's cookies. It's like, imagine not just seeing I agree or no, it's like, I agree and share my data that, like, whatever this brand is requesting, like, you know, obviously, plain English, you could write it down yeah. what they want. And yeah. like, take I agree and share my data. And now, like you said, the entire web page is built for you, you know, based on exclusive exactly. discounts, cool things that you can exactly. get. all
0: of that. Yeah. And 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 the 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 sales proposition on the retailer side is, so you build a whole team that trains retailers on how to use this new interface, right? And like, mm-hmm. I would even. Like I, I would build like a certified marketing expert in our technology or whatever, because the value proposition to the retailers is if you can learn how to use this really effectively and build very detailed specific campaigns, you can triple, quadruple your conversion rate yeah. because you're showing people only what they would buy. Right. Yeah. Only what yeah. they can get shipped to them. Right. You're giving them yeah. discounts right at the right time. and yeah. um, yeah. and So. Yep. then you go and you tell retailers, it's like, Hey, like the future of marketing is actually hiring somebody and figuring out how to build very sophisticated campaigns on our platform. And yep. then you basically just spend 10 years playing the network effects of training retailers on how to build really specific campaigns. And they see is like, Hey, whenever, cause they can attribute it very easily, right? They can say, yeah. we can filter out traffic that comes on and has the cookie that says, yes, they use this platform and The conversion rate of those users based on the campaigns we built is 10%. The conversion rate of random internet users is 2%. Yeah. Right. So there's a massive incentive for retailers to support it. And then on the other end, the users are like, this is amazing. Every time I go to a website, I I get shown exactly what I'm looking for. Like when I go to Nike, I only see products that are available in my size. Yep. Yep. I never yep. get, I never abandon a cart because it's like, this is what I want. Up, oh, didn't have my size. Shit. That's all yep. the way at the end of the transaction, right? Yeah. And I yep. get discounts. Yep. So I'm saving money. Uh, all of this stuff is happening. And it's like, then you just spend 10 years playing those network effects back and forth on each other.
1: Yeah. I think it's genius. I mean, it's definitely the type of world that we would love to build, even at Surf. Like now that we have yeah. kind of consumer legitimacy, consumer trust, we're obviously starting yeah. to move into other pieces of data as well. I mean, I agree. Like, yeah. why isn't there a world where, we couldn't allow you to be able to now take that data and have the best internet experience you possibly will have ever had through it. That would be incredible. Yeah. So I, I love exactly. that. I love it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause imagine like that's where we're moving is like Tyler's internet. Yeah. Swish's internet. Do you know, yeah. Yeah. have you ever read the dead internet theory? No. All right. So you should read this cause I think it's really relevant to what you're building at serve. Sure. So it's like, it's quite off into the dark deep corners of the internet. um but the dead internet theory so there's like two camps one is it's already happened and we're just living in the rubble of the dead internet and two is like it will happen in the future like moore's law will will force it to happen but it's Mm -hmm. essentially like the first version of the internet will become such a wasteland of abandoned servers dead and dead and outdated information advertising like it'll become so unuseful Mm -hmm. from a signal to noise ratio Um, that people will start to leave. And what we will replace it with is some version of, like, private internet. Um, So basically, it's like the internet will fall victim to the tragedy of the commons, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the lowest common denominator will ruin the internet, and what will happen is people will start to build their own private internet networks that don't have all this random noise in it. And Mm -hmm. it'll be really interesting for lots of parties who are interested in power because mm. like they can spin up their own private internet network and say like in exchange for cleaning up all this crap and not exposing you or your children to all of this stuff, implicitly you're giving us the ability to kind of control the narrative and decide right. what you do see and don't see inside of your particular yeah. internet neighborhood. Um, right. And it's a really fascinating take on like, if you look at the internet over the a lens of like a 100 years like, what would cool. it look like in a hundred years? And, cool. you know, the Dune, like, are you a Dune fan? I love Dune. <laughs> yeah, so, the, like, the Dune lore is basically, like, we did the internet experiment, and then it was like, nope, can't survive with this, and they got rid of it, and, and yep. they, like, went back to old ways. It's just, like, pay, like, internet, like, post-internet paganism, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the dead internet is basically just another theory where it's, like, the complete open protocol will become so noisy it'll be useless and like it, yeah. like people will wander around in there but it'll just be like scams and like yeah. kind of like the yeah. deep web will just become the internet that we use right now and then there'll be a new private layer built on top and right um, it'll be all these different like you'll have really premium internet networks that are really expensive and um, like there's this whole thought of quality of information right so you imagine mm you start to overlay socioeconomic strata on access to information on the internet where it's like, Oh, this internet costs $10,000 a month, but you're getting like the highest quality verified information. There's a lot of things that we can do with that sort of price tag to make sure that this information is very quality versus like, Oh, the free internet is like the information quality is quite crap because like there's nobody to filter it out. There's no, Mm -hmm. it's like, we don't make enough money. We're just Mm -hmm. exposed to anything and everything. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting in the paradigm of what you guys are building.
1: I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I do have to jump. By the way, in a minute or two, that's fine.
0: Yeah, no worries. Yeah. I mean, we're I mean, we're already at an hour and ten minutes, which right? yeah, so, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I said at the beginning, it's like just pretend like we're at dinner and time flies. No, literally, <laughs>
1: it, it flew. Like I literally looked down. I'm like, oh fuck! Like I'm already like 15 minutes late. <laughs> but this was like incredible. Yeah. Like I love, I loved what we got into.
0: Yeah, man, me too. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you telling the story of how Surf got off the ground. I'm really excited to continue to follow you guys, and uh, I'm a big believer in you uh, and and what you're building. So I'm really excited to continue to see you do great things, and uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing the story. And I wish you guys the best of luck.
1: Definitely, no, I'll keep you in the loop obviously throughout. I just I I very much treat you like a a domain expert when it comes to everything we're building here, and I just think especially like your eye (laughs) towards consumer is great. So. I, I'll keep you in the loop also that. on like our roadmap and what's ahead. And then, by the way, if you are ever in Toronto, please let me know. I'll let you know, obviously, if I'm coming down to New York ever, but please let me know if you're ever, ever in Toronto. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I will do. I appreciate that, Swish, and uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. All right. Bye, now. Cheers,
1: brother.
0: Hey, everybody. It's Tyler again. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in building a venture-backed company like the one you just heard about we would love to help to learn more about our founder studios that we run around the world please find more information at antler.co